0: and welcome back to another Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the sage himself, the Jewish sage, a Mr. Steve Herzig. How are you, sir? I'm good until I found out something, Chris. What's that?
1: We failed. How did we fail? We gave the news... That's not news. Oh, we got to talk about so that. So he gave the news. That's not
0: news. I know. Well, it was. It was fake news.
1: Seven people are gonna be disappointed.
0: <laughs> that's right. If you're one of those seven listeners, you got to stick around and find out what fake news was that we promoted last fake week. Fake news. I'm. I, I'm. I'm hurt. Chris. Hold on a second. Here we go. Welcome in, welcome in. Yeah, it was fake news. Actually, Steve, I wonder if we should get it out of the way right now. I think we should. Uh, I'm just so disappointed. I was so excited uh, and then nothing. If you're disappointed, can you imagine being the guy who found the piece? And last week we featured... Uh,
1: and we talked it up. He walks around. He picks up a ch- a chart. And, oh, look at what's there. It confirms this. We're Oh, once again, the Bible is authenticated. And then we find out...
0: Bupkis. Bupkis. Hey, the, uh, just a quick reminder, if you didn't get a chance to, to listen to last week's program, we're talking about a news article that we featured where um, I believe it was the uh, president of Israel, Yitzhak Herzog's. Yeah, but get it right. Not Herzig. That's it was right. Herzog. Um, he, his uh, press secretary or somebody um, was doing a dig and came across a pottery shard with the name of Darius, King Darius on it, who's affiliated with uh, the story of Purim uh, as as a Persian king. And so it was one of those moments where all of the archaeological world was saying, look at this, we found Darius just as Purim is coming up. It's inscribed on a piece of pottery shard in Lachish in Israel. And uh, come to find out what happened was some professor teaching archaeology had a fake shard with Darius's name on it left it there, this guy finds it, bada bing, bada boom, fake news. <laughs> and so
1: all seven of our people, they were running around probably saying, I could authenticate the book of Esther, and no, I can't.
0: Nothing. Well, do you know what was funny, though, about that article, is that, uh, or that find, and the fact that it was fake, is that the man who found it, Elion Levy, an Israeli uh, journalist, um, he, I, he posted a picture of himself during Purim dressed up. You know what he dressed up as? No. Darius, the, <laughs> the fake Darius. The story keeps getting better. <laughs> and he said, I'm the fake Darius. So he found the fake Darius pottery shard, and then for Purim, he got dressed up as Darius. All right.
1: Well, that's a fake thing. But Chris, uh, we shouldn't go any further. We have a special guest with us. Yes, we do. Why yes, don't you do. introduce
0: him? I'm excited to introduce uh, uh, Tim Harrison. Tim is no stranger to the Friends of Israel at all, Tim you've been around at friends of israel for how many years this is a my 20- hold on a minute oh, go ahead do it now
1: yeah, this is my 25th year chris
0: 25 yep. years You came friends as of a israel.
1: single guy and now what six kids six kids Yeah, yeah yeah my quiver is full
0: uh you came to the institute of jewish studies when it was actually here at the friends of israel property that's
2: right chris i was here for the last semester of uh, ibs when it was the institute not of the disease studies. not the disease that's right and uh so i was here for the last semester of that and then i was uh there for the first semester of ijs when it became the institute of jewish studies over at philadelphia college of bible back when we're still pcb
0: pcb that's right that's what i did i went to when it was pcb i went to the institute of jewish studies uh but um tim you over the years have become a specialist on your own, a hobbyist, if (laughs) you will, Um, and a lot of unique things that are connected to the Bible. The first one, the first introduction I ever had many years ago when I met you is someone said, oh, Tim reads hieroglyphics. He's the (laughs) Egypt guy. (laughs) I know, and I'm sitting there thinking, he reads hieroglyphics? How does he do that? So is that something you've kept up with? Because that must have been 20 years ago I heard that. Yeah, I've kept up with that a little bit,
2: uh, Chris. Uh, It's kind of difficult to stay fresh when you have six kids on extraneous stuff like that 100 percent, you know but uh i have managed to pick up some books here and there to try and keep current on it uh, there's a lot of dialects even within the hieroglyphics uh language so it's kind of really presents a challenge on staying fresh but uh it's, it's still in there enough so that I can look at uh, most inscriptions today and at least have a good idea of what they're talking about.
1: You led, actually, a couple of trips for IJS to the museum.
2: That's right. Yep. I was the uh, the tour guide several times for the Institute of Jewish Studies at the Philadelphia
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. And then Tim does a chapel today yep. on Church History and we found a brand new equip teacher. That's exactly right. Well, and we
0: knew t- that we've wanted him to do a we have, a quip. but,
1: but it, he sealed the deal what, today. What was your
0: first, like, last time we had talked about you doing a equip, you did something about the battle of the gods, but you had a, maybe it was God smack talk oh, or it something? Was,
2: it was, yeah, divine smack talk. <laughs> yeah. And we were talking about how basically Yahweh, God, uh, basically. Uh, smack talk bail in uh in psalm 24 yeah that was a good one yeah, yeah that was fun
1: he has a way of taking things that um might even be hard to understand or you don't want to understand them <laughs> accept them and bring them into terminology and ways that get you excited about in that case the bible this morning at chapel he got us excited about church history yep uh and so it's. I think he's going to do fantastic. I'm glad we got him for quit.
0: Well, uh, Tim, you did actually a particular. You talked about two particular individuals and a heresy in in church history. Yeah, uh, Alexander. Is that who it was? And uh, Athanasius,
2: Alexander, and Athanasius were really the good guys. Yep mm-hmm. the the two bishops. Yep.
0: And then there was, and this is probably circa uh, third or sorry, third century AD. Yeah.
1: Unless you and correct the big bad name was Arius. The Arius. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yep. And so you talked about kind of the controversy and how through Athanasius was able to solidify truths in 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 the church history that last to this very day because they're a core part of the creeds. Right that we speak
2: right Uh, yeah absolutely uh yeah uh yeah just to to briefly say arius came in with the idea of trying to make jesus and the incarnation more understandable and so he basically said that jesus was a created being that uh, he tried to take away the mystery from it and athanasius and alexander uh alexander was athanasius mentor uh basically taught no jesus wasn't created Uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man, and the fact that there was some mystery behind it was an okay thing.
0: Yeah,
1: that's great. Boy, all that time ago, it was pointed out to us by Jim Showers at that chapel, summing up what Tim said, and said, you know, we really walk or stand on the shoulders of 2,000 years of church history, battling it out for the doctrinal purity of the text, Mm -hmm. and Tim gave us a great example of that uh, this morning.
0: And Tim, you know, we're in the book of Revelation, and Revelation was written by John, and John I think is one of the best uh, um, Gospels that we have to talk about the fact of the, um, the eternal existence of Jesus.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Athanasius was no stranger to what manuscripts he could get uh that included John. And one of the references he used was the lamb slain before the foundation
1: of the world. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Amazing That's stuff stuff. Right. Look at Tim. The man who's on a on a, a lawnmower eight hours a day is a guy who does what do you want? Egyptology? What do you want? Doctrine, history? Tim Harrison's the man
0: (laughs) is that is that when you're riding the because Tim how many acres of land you work the buildings and grounds team here at the friends of Israel how many acres of land are you mowing on that lawnmower and how fast does that lawnmower go.
2: Logmar goes about ten to twelve miles an hour, so it's a little <laughs> bit of a rocket. Yeah, <laughs> and we cut about forty-seven acres of grass.
0: That's amazing. So when you're doing that, that can take several hours. Oh yeah. So I'm every time I see you out there, I already know you're a genius uh, <laughs> from our conversations, but that I know you're not listening to just nothing while you've probably got podcasts going on Yeah, you're learning stuff all the time while you're taking advantage of that alone time going back and forth
2: yeah yeah I I do I try to keep up a lot of good podcasts a lot of historical
1: podcasts notice he um, doesn't do us no <laughs> I you know you're still on the list but I do I just know he's not one of the seven <laughs> no but for I, this I, episode he will uh, be. It, uh, maybe it, yes yeah. in now the lineup he's, he's got a little uh, incentive that's yeah, right
2: <laughs> definitely definitely there so yeah I enjoy the historical podcasts and i i do keep up with uh uh FOY's radio show on, uh, that's really handy to keep on on a podcast it's nice that it's downloadable now yeah and uh but yeah a lot of historical podcasts and uh uh particularly focusing on church history and uh occasionally egyptian history when i find those as well
0: can i the, again, I want to talk up Tim here for a moment because he's somebody who is well-rounded in history, I think is always somebody too that dabbles in other hobbies. And one of the hobbies that it, every time I see it now, I think of you, you do uh, a small uh, hobby trains, right? Model railroading. Model railroading. Right. <laughs> you even have a podcast for model railroading. I do. Yes. Yep. Where did that come from? Model railroading. You know, when I think of that, I just think my dad used to set up a track around the tree. And we'd watch the train go around the tree during Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but we're talking about, like, really detailed model trains, towns and tunnels and things like that. Yeah. That,
2: that came from my father. Uh, actually, our whole family has always enjoyed trains and nostalgia surrounding railroads. And I got to watch as a little child my father working on his model railroad and— I uh, came down to the basement one time, and he had built me my own, and that's basically how it started.
0: That's amazing. Wow,
1: that is amazing. Yeah, because yeah,
0: you have your own following for people who have the same passion you do of model of model trains. And
1: I bet he has more than seven people. Oh, who- I bet he has a ton <laughs> of listeners. I'm confident
0: of that. That's right. Let's see.
1: Trains are the Jew and the Gentile podcast. <laughs> no contest. <laughs> Not any contest. That's
0: right. That's great. Well, Tim, you're more than welcome to stick around. Uh, yeah. I hope you do. I hope you chime in, especially yeah, as we're we going want through. Yeah, we
1: want you to chime in when you can. All right. For
0: Re- Revelation chapter 12. Um, but uh, before we do that, we have some things that we're going to talk about. First is this, Steve. Did you know Emily Stone?
1: Once again, Emily Stone. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of people who enjoy Dear Abby. She's not on it. They have new people now. But the concept of getting advice from the newspaper back in the day. And so Emily Stone writes, let me tell you something, Jewish advice columnists. <laughs> While advice giving might seem a specialty of your neighborhood yenta, it's actually a booming Jewish business that predates Emily Post. From Dear Abby to Ann Landers to Miss Manners, Jewish advice columns have been at the forefront of a movement that attracts a vast relationship, readership, while it cranks out social history of daily life, rich enough to be called Jewish, but lower in calories. Here's an example. Dear Abby, my boyfriend's going to be 20 years old next month. I'd like to give him something nice for his birthday. What do you think he'd like? From Carol. Dear Abby writes back, dear Carol, never mind what he'd like. Give him a tie. (laughs) Oh, uh, that's so that, that's a, a great, Jewish answer. That's a great forget the forget the bum. Get him a tie. <laughs> dress him right.
0: Uh advice. I mean, you're an advice giver, I feel like. Oh, I don't know if I give advice. You're an I feel like you give advice a lot. You offer your advice. I offer it, but nobody asks that, for it. That's <laughs> the that's that's normal, though, isn't it? <laughs> that for me? Absolutely. People, they love to give advice. It doesn't mean people are going to take that's it. That's true. Very true. Have I ever given you
1: any advice, Tim?
2: Oh, Steve, I, I know you have. One of them is to listen to this podcast <laughs> called
0: Jew <"Doing> and Gentile. <laughs> oh, bada bing bada boom oh he fits right in he fits right in all right well listen uh, before we continue we have fast news to do steve oh yeah i forgot we about got fast, fast news, news to do you're going to jerusalem post i'm going to times of israel tim this is when we do fast news wait 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 let me get uh, let me get on and go all right here we go All right, everybody, this is fast news from the Times of Israel. Overhaul protesters gear up for the day of resistance throughout the country on Tuesday as demonstrators aim to disrupt Prime Minister's route to the airport for his trip to Italy. Police are warning that there will be fines, plans of nationwide uh, marches, strikes, and disruptions to traffic and train services. This is great, Steve, because I'm going to Israel next week. Just in time. Just in time.
1: All right. IDF strikes Hamas unit in Gaza after explosives triggered near Israeli forces. They go after
0: them, Israelis. Israelis go after them. That's right. And so it continues. The U.S. administration officials to skip Israel bonds confab over smoke-trick speech. Sources say officials have passed on invitations to attend the annual conference, which far-right ministers will address in wake since walked-back call to wipe out Palestinian town. Again, the U.S. administration wants nothing to do with this Netanyahu government, the Biden administration, and so it's becoming more and more clear. I think it, the U.S. should just stay out of Israeli politics. That's my and think.
1: another reason for Chris to enjoy his trip with Up to Jerusalem, the West... <laughs> (laughs) enclosure may continue amid concerns of revenge attacks for for (laughs) Janine.
0: Trouble in paradise. I just want a smooth trip when we go to Israel, so we'll see what happens. We'll keep everybody posted when I get over there. An explosive device detonated near IDF troops on Gaza border. Tanks shell Hamas post. Hamas and Gaza remain a issue for Israel, especially along the border there.
1: A planet between Mars and Jupiter could wipe out Earth. (laughs) So a study says it's in the (laughs) Jerusalem Post. Once again, science fiction becomes reality. Okay,
0: let's let's hope that doesn't happen while I'm in Israel. Tech unicorn taking 500 million out of Israel offers some staff relocation packages. Riskified CEO worried government may limit transfers amid financial instability. Everybody, that's what's going on in Israel. That's fast news. All right. That wasn't so bad, we're, Steve.
1: We're getting better. We're how was, at it. How
2: was that, Tim? That was amazing. I, and I wonder, is that planet named Wormwood? Uh. I, <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, was Right out of the book of Revelation. Wait to go, Tim.
0: I like it. All right. Well, that's where we are. We are in Revelation chapter 12. And Steve, I don't know if you like this or not, but we're in Revelation chapter 12. That means we have 10 chapters to go. We're moving right along. We're moving along. You know what I was thinking? We've been talking about... Remember last week we highlighted... Um, Uh, That uh, book that I had read about uh, uh, the fact that we shouldn't read the uh, book of Revelation in a futurist mentality.
1: And we got an email about that. Pat Neff wrote. That's right. uh, Pat Neff wrote to us. Pat used to serve with Friends of Israel, one of the people we paid to listen to this podcast. A lot of money. (laughs) And he was saying how much he appreciated it and talked about McKnight and how he interprets the Scripture and was just thankful that we were able to put out from at least our perspective, the truth of the Word of God.
0: You know, there's three approaches to how you read the book of Revelation. There's the uh, amillennial approach that uh, that the, we're in the kingdom, essentially, right now, as ay, we speak. P- press the button. We're in the—this is the kingdom. This is the ay, best God can ay, do. Ay, 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 ay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's—then there's the preterist view, which means that everything was basically— uh, 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 all the Book of Revelation, all prophecy, met itself in seventy. It AD. happened already, mm-hmm. and that's what Scott McKnight believes.
1: Press the button. Is anything okay? <laughs> all right, here we go. Is anything okay? <laughs> if it all happened already, you have to be waking up every
0: day in this reality. Nothing is okay. Nothing is okay. And then there is also what we are, the premillennial perspective, which means we believe these events must happen before the return of Christ. All of them, all those interpretations do believe that Jesus is returning. That we can't deny. And
1: they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.
0: We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Right, Tim? Amen. Historic (laughs) church history. That's right. Fact. That's, and so that's important for us to see. Uh, but the thing I wanted to bring up in, in kind of talking about Scott McKnight's perspective, and he's a brilliant man, um, but it's int- I was thinking about what it means to be a preterist. To be a preterist means that you believe all of God, like the judgment, was assumed in 70 AD. But I started thinking, where was the judgment for Rome? The, the judgment certainly came on the Jewish people, as God had predicted. But the, the book of Revelation talks about a global Punishment, a global judgment that's coming. You know, we talked about the third of this, uh, two thirds of that globally around the world. And yet somehow they believe that tiny Jerusalem in the world being judged is some type of judgment globally as well. And I think, I don't think the Romans were judged. The Romans did just fine. They marched back. There's the Arch of Titus in Rome, which pictures when Titus defeated. Uh, 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 the Jewish people, and we have a picture of the menorah in Rome that goes all the way back to when that event happened in 70 A.D. They're triumphant; they didn't get judged.
1: The Jewish people got judged then. Chris, I've I've been criticized for this, but I'll say it anyway. I've said it before. I believe, and I it's I have to say it succinctly and clearly that a a, a position that is supersessionalist reform in its uh, eschatology is anti-Semitic theology. Mm. And the reason I say that is, one of the reasons is exactly, once the Jews are judged, everything's fine. Yeah, that's a get, great point. Get the Jews! Mm. Well, that's, the, the promises that God gives, he, he, the Lord Jesus came where? To Israel. He was born in Israel. He is Jewish. The prophets are Jewish. The New Testament wasn't even finished and the church was born. But the texts that they were using were all Jewish. Mm -hmm. So, this idea of once Israel is judged, once they're dealt with, uh, we're in the kingdom. This is not, this is Satan's bound. Uh, I I grew up believing in a Messiah. I believed that he was going to come, take the Jewish people to Israel and that there would be peace in the world the wolf will lie down with the lamb not a a vision of the wolf and the lamb a real that there's going to be everything's going to change the earth will change the animal behavior will change people will change the king is here satan is bound in the millennial kingdom if you believe it ha- so satan is bound are you, this, this this look from my jewish background you're going to come up this is the best you can do? Yeah. I'll even give it a Jewish little accent. This is it? <laughs> this is what I waited for? This, this kind of life? No, n- no way. No, n- not the Jewish view. The Jewish view of the kingdom is dramatic. Mm. It's seen by everybody. And it's held together by the son of David. The one who was, is, and is to come, as Tim reminded us in chapel, the second person never changed except coming into a body. But his essence, who he is, never changed. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, have, I, I just have a big problem as a Jewish person and as a believer in Jesus Christ. It, it, it sounds like you're
0: giving advice. Oh, I'm not giving advice I, he's a Jewish sage. Now, the Jewish advice that's I, right <laughs> I, I would
1: echo Paul come to Jesus Christ that's that's it come to the Savior. no it's just coming for
0: did you know you know the did Jewish you know the Jewish advice <laughs> uh that's good Tim you know I don't know what your thoughts are but you know the idea I I, I think it is a good argument to say you know if we're in the kingdom now then there're then we're, we're, we're missing out and it seems like on on all that God had done Talked about like he kind of undersold or over overpromised, you know what uh, what was in the scriptures.
2: Yeah, we definitely if if we're in the age we've been given a bill of goods that uh, just don't measure up to what we were promised, and you know you you bring up a really good point. In if I may, just go back to a couple minutes ago when you said where was the judgment on Rome? I mean the closest you can get is Pompeii in seventy nine A D, and that affected only a very, very small portion of the people. It's hard to call that a judgment at all. In fact, Rome really is prospering at this time mm-hmm. period so yeah. yeah there's no judgment there
0: it's, it's interesting to me how we can take these and i understand what a lot of the uh preterists and amillennialists like to do is they call this apocalyptic literature and so they say the writers are over uh dramatizing or they're exaggerating points so what seems like the end of the world for the jewish people and so they write like it's the end of the world when it's you know When we look back on history, it was Titus coming in and destroying the temple and raising Jerusalem. What are they saying? It's fat. Is that what they're (laughs) They're saying? It's fat. They're saying uh, they're over. It's you know when you uh, they what they try to almost argue like when you're sick and you're like you're over dramatizing the way you know you feel or whatever that they over apocalyptic literature they argue over dramatizes. Uh, But the problem is in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't take those words literally. You know, well boy. Chris,
1: Chapter Twelve is just perfect to segue into what you're saying. Let's let's examine what the text say, says here, which I believe encapsulates the gospel. Yeah, uh, this chapter here encapsulates what happened in in one chapter. Tim, wouldn't you agree? In one chapter, uh, John takes what history church uh jewish history messianic history and paints a biblical picture of what happened very clearly in symbolic form
0: Mm -hmm. go ahead tim
1: oh no yeah absolutely
2: i mean yeah you have the 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 woman the 12 stars you know yeah absolutely all this stuff just comes together and just shows you uh the picture that steve's painting here yeah
0: do you know what i call this i call it a cosmic christmas Ah, that's good. You must have preached this chapter. I've preached it before, and it's because it's the Christmas story. It's just not the Luke passage or the Matthew passage where you have the actual events happening on the ground. This peels back to show you what was going on spiritually as Jesus was coming into the world. I like that title. And in this Cosmic Christmas, I think it fits in even what Tim was preaching about today and teaching about during chapel, which is the pre-existent. Uh, Christ, the fact that Christ has been uh, in existence uh, for eternity. He doesn't have a beginning. And so these are the cosmic events that were happening behind the scenes as Jesus is coming in. I always say it's—there's sometimes, like in the book of Acts, you see what's happening on the ground, you know? But then sometimes we get a look behind the scenes to see what's going on spiritually— Behind the curtain, and that's what John's doing here. So I'll start off. Why don't you start off? Uh, Revelation chapter twelve, verse one: A great sign appeared in heaven. A, A woman clothed with the sun. With the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them into the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will, quote, rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared uh, for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days.
1: Chris, the first three, four words in in my text are now a great sign. Mm-hmm. that you Pay attention. There's a sign. And all that's going to come from that is going to communicate what John is trying to tell us. It's a sign that's going to appear, and it's in heaven. And so who's the woman? Who is this woman?
0: I mean, there's a lot of interpretations as to who the I woman is. I didn't ask that. Who's the woman, Chris? Well, the, the woman is probably Israel, because we have some definition to who she was, she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars in her head. So the twelve stars represent the twelve tribes of Genesis
1: Israel. Genesis thirty-seven. Chris, Jacob had a dream mm-hmm. before Martin Luther King even had a dream. He had a dream. <laughs> Jacob's dream. He had a dream. I have a dream. And and what happened? What was he? His brothers didn't like his dream because it, what John is writing is almost is taking. What happened to Jacob and applying it to what literally happened as Israel gives birth to a child. Mm -hmm. Israel is giving birth to the Mashiach, to the Messiah. And this is a sign. It's a great sign in heaven. And so this woman, John takes the language of the Torah Mm -hmm. and brings it here. We've talked about this. How
0: Jewish is this last book in the New Testament, it's all Jewish. It all roots back to the Old Testament, and it and it talks about the it's it's defining who the woman is. There are some people who say the woman is Mary, um, but even then, you could represent the fact that Mary is the is a, a a picture of Israel and giving birth to 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 Jesus. But here we believe that the woman is Israel and Israel as a nation and. It says this, she was pregnant and cried out in pain, so we come right into this sign with the fact that she's pregnant and she's about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and Steve, again, there's the sign, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head, and its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. Satan is
1: ready and he has been ready, and he has been about the business of persecuting, persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, persecuting Israel, uh, trying to prevent that child from being born, trying to kill that child, which is the Lord Jesus. He tried to prevent him from coming. Then when he came, he tried to have him compromise. And then when he rose from the grave, he wanted to make sure that he can't come back to his people and to his country. And I think it's really clear here.
0: Tim, I don't want to leave you out. I, I, sometimes I look over there and I see you. You look like you're ready <laughs> to pick up. You see, I smell the wood burn. I know. I, I think you got to just cut in. That's our yeah, problem that's here.
1: okay. No,
2: it's, it's you know, we got a lot of big personalities in the room and uh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, I was just going to say, uh, you know, uh for for the, the person who would argue that it's Mary, and, and typically that would be some of our Roman Catholic friends, mm-hmm. uh, this would not be a good one to use as Mary because it mentions how uh, she travailed in childbirth and cried out. Now, if you're a good Roman Catholic, you don't believe that Mary had any labor pains, mm. that it was a relatively... Really, really super easy birth. Interesting.
1: That's I did not I know. Not, I don't have kids. Good, good. This call. is why you got to come to <laughs> Tim's uh, church history class. <laughs>
0: Great insight there. <laughs> A little nugget. I like it. That's perfect. Uh, but uh, uh, again, so the thing that is interesting to me too, Steve, is again, this, uh, the reason I call it the cosmic Christmas is because you know when you read through the Christmas account and even the early years of Jesus' birth, you see that Herod the Great— was scared of losing power, and so he had all of the young, uh, under-two-year-old boys killed in Bethlehem where the Messiah would be born. Uh, again, so what you're seeing is this dragon waiting and in, 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 in waiting for the birth of the of the Messiah in order to get rid of it. And there he is working through Herod the Great— in order to get rid of Jesus. So you have the behind-the-scenes, the spiritual side of things, and then Matthew and Luke give us the more physical side of things as well.
1: You know, it's interesting. We were talking about the woman. I've I just, I, I've used this before, the Life Application Bible Commentary on Revelation from Tyndale, and uh, interesting that he points out the different women and, uh, in the Scripture and how they're uh, viewed. He said, three other symbolic women appear in Revelation. A woman named Jezebel that's in chapter 2, we covered that, Chris, Uh, symbolizing paganism. The Scarlet Woman, symbolizing the apostate church in chapter 17. The Bride of the Lamb, symbolizing God's people, the true church. The Woman's Crown of Twelve Stars, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think that's that's interesting and a great historic look at just the way John handled the idea of the various women in the text. It's mm-hmm. just interesting.
0: I, I want to read this, too, in light of Satan's appearing here as another sign from uh, from John Walvert, actually, who who uh, understood the book of Revelation really well and connecting it to like what we're talking about in the Old Testament um, and the links there. It says this, The second wonder appeared in heaven, the one we just talked about, though it actually related to scenes on earth. It was a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and the seven crowns on his head. From similar descriptions in Daniel chapter seven, uh, verses seven through eight and verse twenty-four, and Revelation chapter thirteen, verse one, this beast represents Satan's control over the world empires in the Great Tribulation. Revelation chapter twelve, verse nine, will identify the dragon as Satan, and the color red might actually indicate the bloodshed related to this period. The ten horns present presented symbolically uh, presented symbolically the ten kings from Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, who reigned simultaneously with the coming uh, world ruler and who uh, were mentioned both in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. And this is the last section. The casting down of the third of the stars out of the sky seemed to imply satanic power over which, uh, which extended to the heavens and the earth. And we see that in the book of Job as well, where Satan and God are interacting with one another. They're technically you know, speaking with one another about this man, Job. And so here is Satan acting, uh, and his power is seen extended both in the heavens and on earth uh, as, uh, as he's attempting to take over and eliminate uh, the, the coming of the Messiah.
1: Well, you know, we believe that Satan is the accuser, and even during this time, he is up and down uh, in heaven and here, uh, accusing us, and rightfully so, um, Tim, I think you'd agree that uh, all human beings, believers or not, uh, we're guilty before yeah. God. We're sinful. We we are not holy and can't be in God's presence. And therefore, Satan's accusations, though he's a liar, he doesn't <laughs> lie about our sin.
2: Yeah, Steve. Unfortunately, we are hopelessly polluted. Uh, and uh that is just that's just the human condition right there. And uh you know, in addition to that, I, I would just like to address you know, you mentioned the, the third of the stars and uh, being swept there. And I know that uh, some of the early church fathers, uh, and you may be aware of this, thought that the stars in that context represented angels and that it was about a third of the angels mm-hmm. that Satan deceived and uh, that fell to that earth.
1: fell to earth
0: with yep. him. Yeah. Yep, definitely.
1: Well, we, I think we should, Chris, remind us what was Satan's, Lucifer's great sin? There was—he had five I wills in Isaiah, but what was the one that we often quote? Well,
0: the, the thing that often comes to my mind is that he wanted to be as powerful as God, if not more powerful than God, and to claim himself as God, which is something that we see throughout the book of Revelation with Satan. Um, that he, and you'll see it later on. is uh, You know, the, the, the Apostle John—I mean, Paul talks about the fact that the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple— and consider—call himself God. And the book of Daniel talks about the fact that the Antichrist uh, will will rise to try to be above God and to show himself as powerful as God. And so these are the attempts. I always say God is the creator. He's the creative one. Satan can only copy what God creates, and that's what he tries to do.
1: That's right. I would always say that the number one thing is that he wants to be like God. I— I'm. I'm not against the concept that he wanted to be better, but just to be the same as God. Well, equal. that's what he.
2: That's what he tempts Adam and Eve with. Exactly. Yeah. He'll be like God. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Exactly. You're learning, Tim. You cut in. I like yeah. it. You got to <laughs> shut us up. You yeah. know? <laughs> Good call, Tim. I like it. All right. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Just as uh, Tim was talking about earlier with what the early church fathers thought as well. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Um, Can I go back really quick to uh, verse uh, 5? And it says, And her child was snatched up to God to his throne. Uh, that we believe is the ascension. So Jesus, you know, comes. He's he's protected by God, even though Satan is attempting to annihilate him um, all throughout his life, starting from his birth. But Jesus was on a mission, we know. Um, and uh, Tim, you were we were you were even mentioning earlier, I think before the podcast started, about the fact that one of the great arguments uh, that for Jesus's preexistence. Is the fact that the there's the verse that says that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you know, here is he, Jesus was on a mission to get to the cross. He did, and he died, and he resurrected. And here it says that he was snatched up to God to His throne. And that word for snatched is harpazo, which is the Greek word, oh. which is the same word that we have for the for rapture. the rapture of the church yeah. in First Thessalonians. And so there is there are some scholars that actually try to link these things together and try to look at the church potentially here as well. But we believe this is the ascension of Jesus and then also the ascension or the, the resurrection of the church, the snatching up of the church.
1: And even his throne, we have to ask the question, because there's difference amongst believers. Which throne? I do not believe that he is seated on David's throne. And there are believers who do. Yeah, uh, I believe he's in heaven. I believe that Davidic throne is on earth. Uh, it's it's not a symbol, it's a throne, and he'll worship uh, in the line of David as promised in Second Samuel as the son of David in Jerusalem. But I believe he's on a throne, I believe he's seated next to the Father, it's just not at least in in our view at Friends of Israel, he's not on the Davidic
0: throne. Well, you know, there's, it's we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but there's so many... Ah, s- we could,
1: we're going slow enough, let's come back <laughs> again next
0: week. <laughs> there's so many similarities between the life of David and the life of Jesus. You know, David had a first coming and a second coming in some way, so you have to follow with me here for a minute, but in, in the first coming... You know, is the book of First Samuel where he's struggling um, to uh, kind of rely on God? Oh, somebody's ringing you, Chris. I, know, I have to put this disturbed <laughs> thing on. Uh, where in First Samuel, you know, David is struggling. He knows he's the king. He knows he's anointed. Samuel anointed him as king. But there's another king sitting on the throne, Saul, and there's a struggle. And David had some followers, and Saul, everybody else followed Saul. And it actually even lets you know what kind of followers David had. They were people who were poor. They were they were the outcasts. They were the downtrodden. Uh, it says that in First Samuel. And so David had followers, he not many. He stayed in his lane, stayed, Chris. That's right. He stayed in his lane until it was time. Until yeah. it was time. And even when there was that moment to create, the to, to make himself king by killing Saul, he didn't. He he cut off a piece and said, "I could not kill the Lord's anointed. I could have
1: done it, but I didn't
0: do it." And even Saul recognized that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But then, so that's First Samuel. There's kind of this tension of of reign um, of who, even though David is king, we believe Jesus is the king when he was on earth. No question, he was the king. He was anointed to be the king. But there was still the struggle, because he never really presented himself as the one sitting on the throne with great power and authority. In fact, he probably confused the disciples more than anything when he says the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, and the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom. I'm sure the disciples are going, you're killing me here, you know? (laughs) But the reality is, is that there was a tension, the same in 1 Samuel with David and his tension. Then you get to 2 Samuel, and all of a sudden, once Saul passes off the scene, David comes and takes his rightful seat on the throne. And but th- things happen. And things happen. But th- th- there was never a question when you're reading 1 Samuel that David's not the king. We know he was the king. Samuel anointed him. There was never a question. You know, when I read this, that Jesus is sitting on the throne, I agree with you. He it, The Davidic throne is an earthly throne for him to sit on, but that doesn't mean He's not the king. 100%. 100%. It doesn't mean he's not the king. He is ruling. He is reigning. He is in control. All of these things are happening because he allows them to happen. So that's no, important I, it's to a, remember. It's
1: a great point. Uh, I, one of my favorite shows is a, uh, a movie on Robin Hood, and King Richard was still king even though his brother was ruling. Uh, he was out fighting the—what's uh, the uh, the—how uh, the, uh, oh, did they word— uh,
0: are you talking about the cartoon one? No, oh, okay. no, no. Because I used to, I used to watch that one with your I, boys. I love, we love
1: that one too. No, Earl Flynn, that nineteen. Oh yes. Oh, it was great. It was a great movie. But uh, who did, who are they following? They were, they understood who the king was and you know, over Sherwood and all all that stuff. But they knew that King Richard was coming back. That's right. And we are uh, we are allegi- We have allegiance to our king. Doesn't we, you know, you're in, we're Americans with the president and the Congress and all that, but we have a king, but he's not here. Mm -hmm. He's king, but he's not here. Mm -hmm. We wait for him to come. We believe he can come and take us anytime, uh, but, and he's the real king, but that's not what's here on the earth. That's right. That is exactly right.
0: Tim, you want to add anything there?
2: I would just say just as a sidebar here, uh, just a little fascinating thing, you know, as you're reading that, and of course, we want to give God all the glory, but God does use people and angels to do his His bidding as well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting here, because we have two times when Michael is opposed to Satan. We have one mentioned in the book of Jude, where they're contesting over the body of Moses. And at that point, you get the sense that Michael is sort of reigned in. He says, the Lord rebuke you. He's not really doing anything much more than that. But here... We finally have Michael just basically cutting loose yep. and tossing <laughs> Satan out of heaven.
0: That's exactly right. It's again that picture of the the b- behind the scenes events that are taking place. Tim, are you a Star Wars fan at all? Do you? Uh, fo- yeah, admittedly. Okay, no, that's that's okay. I'm not the bit. I'm not like I don't I don't follow everything, but I do watch the movies. And there is, I think I've mentioned this before. Do you remember? It might have been the last of the more recent ones that came out. Uh, and uh, there's the scene where. Uh, the woman that is a part of—she's uh, like, I guess, a Jedi, and she's fighting one of the Sith l- uh, lords or whatever down below, and then up they're fighting in the sky or whatever. But yeah. these events were connected to one another. It's almost like the spiritual things that were happening like between these spiritual powers yeah. that are fighting one another are having a drastic effect on the actual physical fightings that are happening between the humans and all that stuff. And I think that's what we're seeing at play here is, again, that behind the scenes, we're getting the look at what it looked like when Jesus came to Earth and Satan was attempting to stop it. It was more than just Jesus coming humbly into the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem and put in a manger. There was a a cosmic war going on behind the scenes with Michael and Satan warring one another. And it's not just here. In this book, Chris, it's every day today
1: for people. We don't see the war going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And there are things that we don't see that are actually happening. Yeah. Yep. It's amazing. Tim, next time you watch
0: that Star Wars, you let me know what you think, okay? Because I probably totally—just to let you know—you're like Chris; you totally butchered that story. But that's just uh, that, that's that's my interpretation of it. Well, I think Steve, we should probably end we'll our conversation back. here. We'll we'll finish up uh, Revelation chapter twelve later. There's a lot more to be discussed there for what I like to call the cosmic Christmas. Maybe you'll go I back.
1: I like that title, and I like to see how slow we can go through Revelation. <laughs>
0: We'll get through it before the end of the year, I promise. All right. Well, uh, Tim, this is when we normally move into the news. So, Steve, you've got some interesting news here. What are you going to look at first? What are you going to share with us?
1: Well, Chris, Laura, who uh, is our uh, senior admin in North American Ministries, one of the things she has enjoyed doing is following news items that might be useful for a podcast and she gave one that's very interesting. I wondered if I would be interested in, in using it, and I am. It comes from NPR of all places. Lambs aren't white and fluffy, and other lessons learned at this campus farm. <laughs> Chris, one of the most popular courses at University of Maryland is taking care of lambs on it. a farm. I love it. It is amazing. Uh, students have run out of tests. Left social gatherings to come and see their lambs. <laughs> they absolutely love it. And the reason I think this is relevant: they interviewed students. They they're there. They have to give them vaccinations. They take care of them when the mother is giving a birth. They are to be there. They have one told the story. So
0: every student gets a lamb or something. That, is that what it's like? That's right. Okay. And they
1: have to take care of. They have to oversee it. This one gal had uh, her uh one of her uh, la- uh sheep had uh was having a baby and she de- helped deliver the first one and then she said the the lamb was still the sheep was still kind of delivering yeah. and so another one came out <laughs> just like your wife and Mila That's right twins t- twins came out That's right But what's interesting I couldn't help but think of the description in this article about lambs and how they look and how helpless they are and all the different idiosyncrasies of lambs reminded me of a great book years ago uh, by Philip Keller, who is a shepherd Mm -hmm. and and a believer. And he wrote a book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, and it is a fascinating little book, just as I was reading about these students. and, And there's nothing Christian about this. It's just about students who are city dwellers who the most popular course is taking care of lambs and they are able to learn all kinds of things about lambs that by God's grace, you know, we should pray that these same people take care of the lambs, would hear the gospel and just associate how we are like sheep. That's what Psalm 23, we're like sheep. We act like sheep. We're helpless like sheep. And we have the same idiosyncrasies. God is the great shepherd. We are the sheep.
0: You know, maybe these kids will take home some biblical principles and apply them to their even though I don't know if they're Christians or not, and apply them to their future jobs. You know, I've done these leadership courses online with a with a college, and it's interesting uh how they talk about leadership in the 21st century. And this isn't a this isn't Christian at all but their biblical principles are trying to say you should shepherd people. You should guide people. You should lead them to places where they can grow and and flourish and you know the old days of the boss who would, you know, yell at the the their their employees and and uh punish them and all these things. Those days are gone, you know, the guy with the, that would sit in the corner office. Now it's, you know, how are you shepherding? That was what I I wrote in this online class I was taking about how much how many biblical principles there are you know th- this isn't new stuff everybody this goes back to the bible jesus tells us what true leadership looks like maybe they'll take something home uh these students and they th- maybe they'll start businesses or something and they'll think about their employees and maybe they'll shepherd their employees like or maybe
1: cheap. they'll remember if they've ever been exposed to the bible or ever will be they'll remember their experience and see how
0: close they are to behavior of lambs. That's, I thought that was that interesting. Was good. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And people love to take... They love to take care of lambs. Uh,
1: one of the things the gal said, you know, I never realized how hard it was to take a thermometer and put it in the back end of the of the sheep <laughs> to take its temperature. That's what it says here. That's I uh, thought that yeah, would be so yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't easy. And she, yeah. Live and be well. <laughs> well, segueing from that and going oh, and on perfect, lambs. Well, yeah, lambs. It's there you go. It's still lambs. Learning the pass learning from Passover Seder without co-opting it. This is from christiancentury.org. And this one is interesting, Chris, because It kind of supports, on the one hand, supporting, oh, yeah, the Passover in the Bible is very important. Jesus celebrated the Passover. But then on the other hand, it kind of cuts to the quick what we're trying to do at Friends of Israel, where we do Passover Seder demonstrations. I just did one in North Carolina on Monday. And there you go. And so the writer here, Michael Fick, and I appreciate what he was saying, but I didn't agree with this part. He said, in some Christian circles— Honoring Jesus' Jewish identity was manifested in a desire to connect to Passover by holding a Seder meal. While usually well-intentioned, that which is great, this practice is problematic for multiple reasons. Why? Why? Well, he... He, the reason is he, he said, saying what Jesus celebrated was problematic? No. What he's saying, what Jesus celebrated and what Jewish people celebrate today isn't the same. The Passover isn't the same. And by the way, we at Friends of Israel
0: would agree. Yeah, we major, agree with that. Well, hey, you want to talk about the uh, Scott McKnight 70 AD a preterist? It there it was there was an effect to 70 AD. The destruction of the temple. The Passover has never been the same. A hundred percent. But actually at Friends of Israel,
1: we could give you, just like the old Chinese food restaurants, one from column A or one from column B. <laughs> and column A is Peter Cologne, who does a first century Passover. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to do that, and he, takes, he loves doing reenactments, and he'll take you to the first century and how they did it. And, and, you, and people learn and grow, and, and we're a hundred percent behind that. But then there's the modern or more modern Passover since the temple was destroyed and things change. That's the way I was raised. But I can speak from experience saying I celebrated Passover blind, uh, the way Paul describes blindness, didn't know who Jesus was, and thought I understood the Passover until, as a believer, a brand new believer, I watched a Jewish Passover from a Christ like perspective. In other words, Looking back at the Passover, what Jewish people do, and taking what they do and showing the clear, in in as crystal clear as you can make it, uh, that Jesus indeed is the revealed Messiah, and so important. Just real quick, just the three matzahs, the three matzahs uh, that, according to Jewish uh, teaching, represents the Jewish people. The the Kohanim, the high priest, the Levites, and the people of the land. And yet it's always the middle matzah. It's always the middle matzah that's taken, broken, wrapped, and brought back. Mm-hmm. And what is it called? The only Greek word in the Seder, which tells you that it's it's old. It's, <laughs> it's Greek. It means he came. Mm-hmm. And I remember, Chris, seeing doing that as a young child, finding the afikomen, giving it to my dad, getting a reward. And we'll stand up in a church or Bible study or wherever we are, and we'll say, look, what do Christians learn from what Jewish people do? Hey, the middle person in the Godhead came to earth, suffered, died, was killed, purchased with a price, the price of redemption, and everybody eats it. Jesus celebrated the Passover, and everybody, he, he said, this is the new covenant of in my body.
0: And so we remember him. And so I disagree with... Because yeah, uh, here's his points really quick. We, uh, the value that you can take uh, from the Passover is we encounter to a call to embrace small gatherings of believers. Okay. Which is
1: good. That's no, he, right. he
0: just says the idea of Passover is something well, Christians it, should do, but in their own little way. But it's hollowing. We encounter the power of both offering and receiving hospitality. We encounter the opportunity to ritualize the ordinary. We have an opportunity to think about the power of food and eating. We are called to reexamine who really, who's really welcome and what, and what that really means. We are invited to respond creatively to changing contexts that call for the building of new relationships with our neighbors. And I think that's it. Well, where, where, where's hope? Where's redemption? Where's uh, salvation? Where's deliverance? Where's acceptance? It's almost like he's right. The Passover is different than what Jesus celebrated. It's developed over the years. But I'll tell you this right now. When we do a Passover Seder, of course we should be hospitable. Of course we should uh, always be thinking of ways to engage our neighbors and and to connect with them and to love them and to show kindness to them. We also are connecting people to the Scriptures, which offers hope and redemption and deliverance. And There's a message in the Passover. 100%. And we, and we need to communicate. Even in so. the Jewish Passover today. Yeah, 100%.
2: And I think
1: what's interesting is, you know, even though
2: you had the Rambam come along and modernize... Look at him. i The it. Rambam, <laughs> We're,
0: We're leaving. We're <laughs> Look leaving. at you, Tim. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. Sorry, I Just, forgot you. No,
2: yeah. it's fine. Just that you had him come along and, and really modernize Judaism and try and, uh, you know, really kind of reframe it and stuff like that uh boy stuff like that there's another one uh (laughs) you still he still didn't lose that that those messianic overtones of things like the passover all that and all that hope still comes through and i think that's why you know yeah you guys are right on that's that's still something that we should be looking into today uh, you know that hasn't changed.
0: Well, the rambam you're talking about is Maimonides, who formulated the doctrinal statement of Judaism. And at the very end, he tells people, "If you are consider yourself Jewish, one of the core essentials of Judaism is the belief that the Messiah is coming, and there will be." A I believe
1: on Earth. in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he tarry. I will wait for him. Number twelve of the thirteen principles. Which? Uh, what is that again? The ani uh, ma'ani. Uh, uh, Shimon Eshrei is where it's it's found. It's the blessing. It's part of the blessings,
0: and that's built actually into the Passover seder. Yeah, and, and it's built into every Shabbat service. Yeah. But Every Shabbat service, they they wait for the coming of the Messiah. I'm glad that you brought up his name. He's Maimonides is the Maimonides famous. Rambam. yep. and the Rambam was another name. Yep. And so great, Tim. Look at Tim, the <laughs> man.
1: As soon as we make him a professor, all of a sudden he's like a
0: fountain of information. Bada bing, bada boom. All right, see if we got one more. I'll, I brought this. Go one ahead. To the, I brought this one to the table. Um, this one comes from the Jerusalem Post. And we didn't feature it in fast news because I thought we should slow down and 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 have a conversation about it. Uh, more Palestinians than ever want Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. Poll: A Palestinian poll indicates shifts in the attitudes of East Jerusalemites toward Israel. Over the last decade. Let me read the stats here from the poll. The goals of the survey, that the survey identified two goals it sought to achieve. First, it wanted to identify current problems and concerns of East Jerusalem Palestinians under the existing political and living conditions, as well as identify their views and likely patterns of behavior and future political settlement. Secondly, the survey wanted to compare the results of the previous 2010 poll in order to find elements of change. The survey respondents were asked about the delivery of specific services provided by the Israeli Jerusalem City Municipality. In the vast majority of cases, Palestinians are more satisfied with the services provided to them than they were 10 years ago. While many of the increases in satisfaction are modest, others are dramatic. For instance satisfaction with the speed with which ambulance services arrive at the scene after requesting it rose from 46% to 69%. Palestinians express similar in- increase in their satisfaction with such things as the speed to which fire and other emergency services arrive on the scene, 42% to 70%, and overall standard of living, 35% to 56%, and access to areas inside the West Bank, 27% to 48%. So... Do you remember when we had Bassem Eid, the Israel, the Palestinian yep. man, do a class for FOI equip, and he said he taught. He grew up in Palestine uh, in in the West Bank when it was under Jordanian control, and then the Israelis came in, and he said, Chris, and he was talking to you too. He said the the the, the changes that happened when the Israelis took control were drastic. We went from you know going to the bathroom in in huts outside to running water and plumbing and all of a sudden i went from you know when the jordanians had control you know no entertainment then all of a sudden the israelis take control and now as a palestinian young boy i'm watching a television i've never had a television before and so he was talking about the fact that these modern amenities came um to palestinians as a result of israeli uh um uh, uh sovereignty over
1: standard of living is lifted by the israelis and And lifted for all. I'm sure I haven't read that, Chris, but I'm sure medical. I you heard about ambulances, but the medical attention given to Palestinians uh, by the Israelis uh, much better. Uh, In fact, in Israel, they've even rushed Syrian soldiers who are fighting in the civil war when they get injured. They go to Israel mm-hmm. and get fixed up to go back to battle. There's no, there's no other country in the Middle East like Israel.
0: Well, here's the last poll. The response between two polls, again, radically shifted. Between 2010 and 2022, the percentage of respondents who preferred Palestinian sovereignty dropped from 52% to 38%. That's big. That means, I, I know this for a fact, that most Palestinians do not trust their government at all.
1: It's kind of like New Yorkers who are going down to Florida. Yeah, that's right. We're out of here. (laughs) And a lot of Californians going to Texas. That's exactly right. Why? In America, you can do that. The Palestinians, uh, there's difficulties in doing those kinds of things. But if you're an Israeli uh, uh, Arab, if you're an Israeli uh, Muslim, you have the same benefits as any Israeli. So in California, 300,000 people got out of Dodge in California. Where'd they go? They went to Texas. They went to Idaho. Arizona.
0: Arizona. All the places where they could thrive.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it is in Israel, too.
0: 100%. Hey, listen, before we go to the Yiddish word of the day, I just want to say that the Jew and Gentile podcast, we forgot to mention this, but it's sponsored well, by... we've F- been alluding to yeah, Equip yeah. the
1: whole time. That's right.
0: FOI Equip is our sponsor. FOI Equip is your place where you can learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective. This Thursday, tomorrow night, we've got Tom Simcox who's going to be doing a three-week class on Messianic prophecies starting March 9th, 7.30 p.m. You can sign up and register for free, Steve. Free. Unbelievable. Unbelievable Unbelievable. is right. So uh, I encourage you, if you haven't yet, be sure to go to foiequip.org. We should have mentioned that a lot earlier, but we were so excited to have Tim, so excited to talk about the things that we've been discussing. Well, we did mention Equip. He's going to be teaching Equip.
1: Equip sponsors the show, and he's going to be a prof, and Tom is a prof for
0: Equip. And We love Equip. Tim, are you ready for Equip? I know you have till July. I mean, we're giving you plenty of time. Make the (laughs)
1: announcements. I don't know when it's going to happen, but Equip will have its own podcast.
0: Oh, Equip! That's right. Right now, we're developing an FOI Equip podcast uh, that we can share with you on on our show notes here as soon as it's launched. But we're taking all the teaching from FOI Equip. So when Tim teaches his class on church history or Messianic Prophecies. You'll see them pop up on your podcast feed. He'll have something to listen. He won't listen to the Jew and the Gentile podcast. <laughs> he'll listen to himself. But he'll
1: listen to himself <laughs> teaching a course.
0: I w- <laughs> Tim's the man. No, that's good. All right, well, listen. Here we go, Tim. Our last segment, Yiddish Word of the Day, everybody. Yiddish Word. We found this one because of the lambs and the Passovers, and Passover's coming soon. Steve, what's our Yiddish Word of the Day? Well,
1: Chris, I never heard of this before. We did look it up, but a Azaisen Pesach. Ah, a, a Zeisen, Zeisen Pe- Pesach, Pesach is a sweet
0: Passover. Okay. I like it. A now, Zeisen
1: Pesach. Now I
0: don't know how early we can say a Zysen Pass a Pesach, but uh a sweet Passover. But a Passover is gonna start on April 5th. That's right. In
1: fact, uh Ramadan is uh right around there. Easter is around. We call it, I call it Resurrection Day, and then Pesach as well. So a Zeisen.
0: Pesas. I said, you know, what's interesting is only English speakers call Easter, Easter. It's because of what the King James Bible did when they translated the Greek word Passover and they made it Easter. Um, but uh, every other language, uh, you know, uh, French call it. Pa- I forget what they Pas pox, which means Passover. Uh, Spanish pascal is what they call Easter, which means Passover. And every other language, it's Passover. But in English, we call it Easter. So there you go. Resurrection Day, Easter, Passover, all connected. A Zeisen Pesach to you, my friends. A Zeisen Pesach to you. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, Tim, thanks for coming and contributing. <laughs> thank thanks for being a part of the podcast. Just a fresh reminder, go to foiequip.org, and there you'll be able to register for Tom Simcox's class. Messianic prophecies. Looking at the Bible, trying to understand the messianic prophecies that pointed not only to jesus's first coming, but also his second coming. You're gonna to want to do that. That's three weeks starting March 9th by going to FOIEquip.org and you can sign up and it's free 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 free. Steve last words go ahead right now. Zygozen live and be well. All right everybody we'll we will see you next week.